Well, hi, everybody. I see a lot of familiar faces out here. It's been, uh, wow, a couple of couple of years, three years maybe, since we've been here, Shirley and I. I can't remember. Can you? I'm over 70, so I don't have to remember, you know. <laughs> so, but it's sure good to see you again, and good to see Pastor Tim and Alicia back on your feet. And uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, to catch you up a little bit, um, so what kind of changes are happening in the Oliver family? I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if I'd said this before or not two or three years ago, but I'll remind you anyway. Uh, we have two daughters in their 40s, mid-40s. Uh, I'm saying mid-40s because I don't exactly remember what, what are they, Shirley? 44 and 42. All right, 44 and 42. And they're, they're married, and uh, between them they have nine grandchildren. We have nine grandchildren. And um, five out of those nine are high school or in college. So um, lots of drama. Lots of drama, and it's good, though it's really good. We're close family, we're all living within five miles of each other, so up in Ukiah. Shirley and I are still living at the same house uh, at Lake Mendocino, and it's been home for all of our children and grandchildren over those many years. And uh, Well, I guess the next largest thing that's happened in our family is Shirley has retired after 50 years in the nursing profession. She retired last month. And uh, so I'm happy. Thank you. Yeah, good. And uh, I am really happy to have her home. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. I keep bumping into her in the kitchen, though. That's a, Anyway. Yeah, lots of drama, quite a few changes. Um, other than that, not a whole lot. You know, the one thing I'm really grateful for is that as things change, in our own personal lives and in our community and in our state and the country, there is one thing that never changes. Do you remember what that is? It's the Word of God. It never changes. And um, so I am pleased this morning. I'm going to do something here that uh, I haven't done before, but I'm going to do it for a reason and a purpose, and I'll explain it. Um, six and a half years ago, uh, when Tim first got, Pastor Tim uh, first got sick, I brought a series out of First Peter, um, and it was a, a, a series, I think, of three or four. I'm not sure what, how many. And I'm going to bring back a message that I brought then. And the reason I'm going to do that is because Peter was writing to encourage Christians during distressing times. Would you say that we live in distressing times? My goodness, um, when I listen to the news day by day, and sometimes I just don't want to, but I do it anyway because we have to stay informed. I think that's the Christian duty. That's something we should do. But we know that Peter was um, speaking to Christians in distressing times because he said in 1 Peter 1, verse 6, he talked about how they have been distressed by various trials. And that's a rather vague term, but it got a bit more specific in the next verse when he talked about their faith being tested by fire. And sometimes I feel like Christians today uh, are kind of in the mix of being tested by fire. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago I was mulling over all the issues that that Christians and other people in this country are dealing with, and I, I kind of made a little list so here are some of the things, just as a reminder, that, that we're going through in this country. There is, of course, 
the pandemic that we are dealing with. That's probably first and foremost of, in a lot of minds. We're dealing with the situation in Afghanistan, um, rampant homelessness. We have political turmoil in Washington, D.C. We have in our schools um, this interesting discussion about the critical race theory and whether or not that does or doesn't belong there. We have confusion on our southern border. We have cyber attacks on our public and private institutions. We have a radical increase in our national debt. We have uh, inflation we're dealing with that today where the price of lumber and food and gasoline and things like that are, are going sky high. We are experiencing, oh, I haven't been counting, but it seems like almost on a daily basis we're dealing with these mass shootings uh, all over the country. Um, we have uh, a radical increase in the violent crime rate in our major cities. And we have a visibly increasing persecution of Christians. It's a big list, isn't it? doesn't have all of those things in it. But nonetheless, I think that's enough to, to wet the palate for what Peter has to say. Peter is speaking on behalf of the Lord God. And the question is, God, do you have an answer for these things? What, what is the answer? And it comes through Peter here in, in our text. Um, when he began his letter to the churches in Asia, he had a lot of things to say. They're encouraging things about what it means to be a Christian. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he mentions uh, very quickly four truths that help us to stand firm in our faith. Four truths. If you, and I understand you're using the ESV, I'm using the NAS. Um, but they read very, very closely. So I'm going to read from the New American Standard. I'm kind of too advanced in years to make a switch now. So <laughs> I'm going to do the New, New American Standard. But if you'll follow with me as I read in verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Four truths given to us in those two verses that help us to stand firm in our faith. First, we are, if you'll notice, aliens in this world. The moment a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, he becomes a citizen of heaven. Life in this world is transient. It is no longer our home. You're aware of that, yes? When you became a Christian, in effect, God took your citizenship papers here, tore them up, and, and, and just vaporized them, and he issued you a new citizenship document, and it makes you a citizen of heaven. That's big. That's huge. Truth number two, we have been chosen by God. And this is kind of the preparatory stage of salvation when God, before the foundation of the world, selected those whom he later would bring into a personal relationship with himself. Third, we have been sanctified. That word means to be set apart, 
for God's use. And it's done by the power, if you'll notice, of his Holy Spirit. This is the beginning aspect of salvation when God's Spirit calls an individual to faith. And lastly, the fourth truth, in addition to being aliens, chosen, sanctified, we are blessed by God. When as a result of that being set apart, we are obedient to Christ. It's a whole new life, isn't it? whole new citizenship, a whole new experience as a Christian. Well, in the verses that follow, Peter continues to encourage us by revealing a much bigger picture of God's salvation plan. Seen from that perspective of being chosen and sanctified by the Spirit, salvation is seen as a dot on God's timeline. But now, Peter is going to tell us salvation can also be seen as transhistoric or in a cross-time matter. As believers, you and I can say, I have been saved by faith in Christ. There was a point in time in every believer's life when the regenerating power of God caused us to be born again. We can also say that I am now saved by faith in Christ. Once we enter into that regenerated state, then we are kept there by his power. It is also appropriate to say that I will be saved by my faith in Christ. We know that our salvation is not complete yet because we have not yet experienced the glory of our eternal state. And so we see from this perspective of being chosen and sanctified that it's a cross-time, trans-historic condition that we are in. And because of that, we can come to the conclusion that Christians are the recipients of a salvation that began in eternity past and will continue into eternity future. Is that encouraging to you? I mean, we get so used to living in the moment. We get used to living in the day, day by day, with all of its crunches and stresses and trials and challenges. We forget that God has made some promises. He's made salvation uh, not something that is present, but something past and something in the future. And in light of that, in verses 3 to 12 here, Peter then describes this big picture of salvation in three different time frames. He, he addresses it from the, in the future. That's in verses 3 to 5. We're going to cover that this morning. He covers it in the present in verses 6 to 9. And he also gives us confidence from the past in verses 10 to 12. So we have hope for the present, hope for the future. We have joy for the present. And we have confidence from the past. God has seen to all of our needs. He has. Well, in this way, Peter is handing us the keys that help us stand firm in our faith because he enlarges this perspective and he says, look, it's not just about today and it's not just about you. It's about this entire world of Christians from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. And friends, I tell you, I get so excited when I, when I hear that. It allows me to see everything that happens in this world in much clearer perspective because it's not my home. It's not your home either, saved by Christ. The first key that Peter wants to talk about is hope for the future. Look at verse 3. I'm going to read 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, living hope, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If we just take a moment to let that, that whole thought kind of sink in. I want to address the definition of a living hope. We use this word hope all the time in our uh, vocabulary, in our language of the day. But we almost always use it in the, in the sense that it's wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't get, I hope it doesn't get too hot today. That's wishful thinking, isn't it? Um, I hope it, it may get hot, it may not. It's still a wish. Um, I, hope it, I hope it rains next week. Hmm, you do too. Wishful thinking. That's generally how we use that word elpidos, hope, that original word, that New Testament word. But I want you to know that the, the biblical definition of hope is quite different. It does not mean wishful thinking. Rather, it means that there is a solid faith-based determination that this is going to happen and you believe it, and you trust that it will happen by the power of God. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I, I would just want to make a comment about hopelessness. I'm sure that you would agree that nothing destroys the human spirit more completely than a sense of hopelessness. Someone has said that if you could convince a man that there was no such thing as hope, he would curse the day he was born. Why? Because hope is an indispensable quality of human life. The prophet Nahum described the depth of despondency attached to the word hopeless when he said, without hope, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. The Reverend W.J. Dean pictured hopelessness several ways when he said this. It's a quote. Nothing can be more distressing than the consciousness of powerlessness in the presence of the deepest human need. And he gave four examples. To witness from the seashore the wreck and to be utterly unable to save the shipwrecked mariners. Two, to be sure that someone is in the burning house and yet for it to be impossible to reach him and to bring him out. Three, to stand before an audience alarmed by some needless cry and to see the rush toward the doors and be unequal to checking it. Or four, to be by the bedside of one in life's youth or manhood's prime and to hear that disease had prematurely seized its victim and that medical help cannot cure, but only, and that for a time, alleviate. Hopelessness or hopeless was what the people had in mind when young King David stepped out of the crowd with a, a sling and took on Goliath. It's, that's hopeless. Hopeless was what Pharaoh's court was thinking when Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord God, let my people go. Hopeless was what Israel thought when Gideon took 300 men across the Jezreel Valley to protect their country against 120,000 Midianite warriors. Hopeless. 
Yet all three were triumphant by the power of God. And that's the power of whom of the God of whom Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thy out, thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. So when Peter said in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he began with this word, eulegatos, and it, it means to celebrate with praises the power of our God. It, it's, just a, it's just an amazing thing. When, when we start to think about hope versus hopelessness, and I just described the hope being um, a confident expectation, not just wishful thinking. God, who by his mercy has caused us to be born again to what kind of a hope? Say again. See that word? Living. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we proclaim good and worthy things about our God, and it's not just because God offers us something good, but more specifically, a living hope for a glorious future to come. That gets me excited. I don't know about you. I'm not, I think I said this before, I'm not used to dancing in, in the pulpit, but sometimes when I read these words, it just makes me, it just makes me want to shout, hallelujah. Well, we sang it. <laughs> this is a hope friends because it's a living hope it is a hope that is alive it is vibrant it is active in the life of its recipient it is a spiritually energized hope it's a stirred up hope it's a present hope it's a zealous hope it's a joyful hope it's an optimistic hope because it has been given to us by God who not only defeated hopelessness where? at the cross but also in plants and it energizes the reality of that hope with a living sense of victory and joy in the heart of everyone who believes in him. That, that's so powerful. Beth Wiest, very popular commentarian, described living hope like this. This is a quote. It is both an attitude of expectancy as the Christian looks forward to the inheritance awaiting him in heaven, and, this is the other, a hopefulness of present blessing from God in this life in view of the eternal blessedness of the believer in the next life. It's all connected. A child of God, he concluded, this is a quote, I'm still in the quote, he has no right to look on the dark side of things and to look for the worst to happen to him. As the object of God's love and care, he has the right to look for the best to come to him and to look on the bright side of things. That's living hope. And it's different than the way we use the, hope, the word hope in our contemporary language. It's living hope. It's alive. We used to saying that the knowledge that we have an inheritance of future glory, <laughs> it should literally explode out of our lives every day and fill us with this constant awareness that the power of God takes away our fear. It, takes, it neutralizes all of our anxieties and it replaces all of that with the triumphant belief in his promises no matter what the circumstances. If I could say there's a pinnacle point to the message this morning, that's it. It neutralizes anxieties. It wipes away the fear. That's why scripture is so clear to us when it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Um, what's the rest of it? 
You, I don't even need to say it. You can finish it. <laughs> you know, we, uh, yeah, we fret, we stew, we chip at our fingernails. Uh, we worry about a hundred little things and how we can manipulate this or seek out a little more happiness from life. And all the while, our God has said, through your faith in the resurrected Jesus, I have already implanted a living, overwhelming, vibrant, exciting hope of glory in you. Express it, live in it, and do it with freedom and excitement and live up to it. This is a, this is a message that the, the thought keeps coming back to me that lifts us up and over all of the circumstances uh, in our daily lives. Because it's based on faith. A belief in God through faith in Jesus Christ and in the working power of the Holy Spirit in you and in me all the time. See, it's different. It's not a health and wealth message. I mean, some people could sit back and say, hmm, okay, this is beginning to sound a little squirrely. No, it's not. Nobody is saying here that the power of you know, positive thinking um, positive human thing is going to lift you out of your doldrums and make you feel better about yourself. No. This is a clear and deeply penetrating truth that salvation through faith in Christ is nothing less than the gift of the hope, the confident expectation of glory that powerfully and continually lives in our hearts. Why? God put it there. In you and in me. And so we bless God we celebrate with praises for mercifully causing us to be born again and putting us on a track that leads to an amazing future through the resurrected Jesus. Are you getting excited? Are you feeling like I am right now? I mean, when the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, begins to work like that two-edged sword, I get tingles. I get chills. Because I, I, now I'm beginning to understand that as... Luther said to his friend, <laughs> oh golly, it was just on the tip of my tongue. Erasmus, thank you, Shirley. She's heard it, yeah, she knows. Uh, by the way, Lucas, Lucy, uh, Luther and Erasmus had a, they had a really good relationship. Luther, of, of course, is Luther, but Erasmus was um, a different kind. He was a Christian humanist, and so they constantly were write, write, writing letters back and forth. and. Uh, Luther kept, there was kind of a written argument back and forth in the kitchen. And it finally got to the point where Luther wrote in a letter to Erasmus, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are just way too human. Friends, we have to get outside of that human thinking and let the Spirit enter in and convince us of who this God is that we love and serve and who loved us and brought us into his kingdom so that we can enjoy these benefits, the benefit of future glory. And you know, what is that like? What is future glory like? Well, what did Peter call it here? He said, to obtain an, what? An inheritance. He said in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. And look how he described it. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8 that all Christians are fellow heirs with Christ. 
That means we share in the victory that is his. What is his is also ours. And when Jesus was praying to the Father in John 17, verse 22, he said, Father, and the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, us, so that they may be one just as we are one. So Christ's victory is given to Christians in anticipation of eternal unity with one another and with him. When God looks at believers, he sees the same victory as that which he gave to his own dear son. This is amazing. You know, it kind of reminds me, uh, this is Old Testament. It's before, before Peter, before Christ, but it was Isaiah who was reflecting on his salvation. And it, 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 this is what thrills me. He said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness is it today? It's the righteousness of Christ. This is a truth that should be heard around the world. This is a truth that we should be bringing to the world and, and are. God's, God's word really makes it very clear that our inheritance of Christ's victory is preserved by God. It cannot be broken. It cannot be diminished. It, it is not negotiable. It is guaranteed by God and his word. Peter said in verse 4, it's imperishable. That means it lasts forever. How long is that? That's a long time, huh? It lasts forever. It's not like some overripe banana that's been on your kitchen countertop for you know, a couple of weeks. That doesn't last. That's perishable. This inheritance is imperishable. Peter also said this inheritance of eternal life is undefiled. That means it, it cannot be compromised. It can't be reduced in value. It can't be cheapened in any way. Peter said, third, that the inheritance will not fade away. So it really, it, it, it can't be losing its full vibrancy in our life. Can't wear out. You know, if we took a colored shirt and put it out in the sun, after a while it would fade, wouldn't it? That will not happen with inheritance, with our inheritance. Fourth, Peter described this inheritance as being reserved in heaven for you and you and you. It's reserved in heaven for you. Every Christian has a reservation at the banquet table. The banquet table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking forward to that celebration, it was the Apostle John who said in the Revelation, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We're invited. And we're going we're gonna to be there. We will. But the point is that heaven is waiting for you and me. It's waiting. Not only is our inheritance of glory preserved for us, but here's, a, here's another fascinating fact. We are preserved for it. Peter said in verse 5, you who are protected by the power of God, I'll say that again, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The word protected here is a military term. It means to be watched over carefully. It means to be guarded. 
I have to tell you that you know years ago, and I've used this illustration before. You might want to rem might remember it, but when I was working for the county here, uh, many many years ago, um, I had to take a business trip to Klamath Falls. Now, that's somewhere in Oregon, near the middle. Um, but at, at the time, when we made business trips, we had to go through a travel agent who made all the bookings for us. And so I did that appropriately. I called the booking agent. I said, okay, I need to get to Klamath Falls. And all the arrange I got a call back. All the arrangements were made. I drive to San Francisco, um, catch a flight from San Francisco to Portland. And then I go over to the desk for a commuter flight. And that takes me to Klamath Falls. It was all neatly arranged until I got to Portland. I went to the boarding gate and they said, we don't know who you are, you're not on our list, and the flight is full. You can't get on. I said, but I have a reservation. They said, no, you don't. You may have it in Santa Rosa, <laughs> but you don't have it in Portland, and you can't get on the flight. You have to, to wait for the next one. Okay, when is that? Uh, the next flight is in 12 hours. So I sat in that terminal for 12 hours, waiting for my flight. You think I felt betrayed? Yeah, friend, the point of the story is this, that will never happen with your and my reservation in heaven. Because as we are just told by Peter, our reservation has been guarded by God faithfully through our faith and by his power. Isn't that exciting? You'll never miss your plane, so to speak. You know what a comfort all of this is. Nothing has been, as I said, neglected or forgotten. Everything we need to experience this ultimate victory has been arranged. All we're waiting for now is the return of Christ to claim us, and it will be ours. Someday we'll all be at that banquet table with the Lord Jesus, and what rejoicing there will be then. You know, he's you don't have to do this, but if you were to look to your left and to your right, and you can look here or back or anywhere around in this group, provided you've been saved by the blood of Christ at the cross, we're all going to be at that banquet table together. Isn't that going to be fun? Moreover, it's going to be totally satisfying. It's going to be exciting to be there. Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not that way, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and uh, prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will re receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. When, again, back to that prayer that he prayed to his Father in John 17. Jesus said, Father... I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. And it was the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, who, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 1, who said, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, here's, you know what this word means, you were sealed in him, in Christ, 
with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. There's that word again, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. To what? To the praise of his glory. <laughs> it's just, it's thrilling. I'm getting the goosebumps again. So as, as Peter uh, begins to describe salvation from these different time frames, he starts with the future and what it holds for us. And the impact of that is how it lifts us above our circumstances. Because that hope, that confident expectation of where we are all going to be someday is not here. It is going to be in heaven. And then there will be a time after, as Peter said uh, in, his, in his epistle, there will be a time when the earth is destroyed and then, and then recalculated and put back together again and we'll be uh, at home together forever in the New Jerusalem. Is that exciting? Wow. As we understand more fully uh, what that is, can we respond to God's love and power by letting him vanquish every doubt we might have about our future? Then can we let him replace that doubt with this living hope and with that cause us to give unceasing praise to God? For he has not just offered us something. He has guaranteed us the inheritance of glory forever. Not only that, but he is even now faithfully watching over each one of us, exercising his power when and where necessary to make sure we arrive at the right place at the right time to receive that which is ours by faith and satisfies the promise of God toward each one of us. What a great, great God we have who has sealed us with his love and sustains us with his power for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's a lot to digest, isn't it? So we'll stop there. Let me pray. It is our pleasure, Lord, to thank you for the word of God that gives us not just hope, but living hope. That expression that we use that comes from you and allows us to look forward to that which is ours by faith. So Lord, as we sing our closing song, let it be more than a song. Let it be our worship. Let it be our worship. Let it be, Father, that expression of our commitment to honor you by an unceasing remembrance of your glory, by a willing submission to your lordship in our life, and then to live that life with conscious spiritual service for the glory of Jesus. Thank you. Amen.